0: So my lecture today aims to accomplish three things. At a substantive level, I ask, what was meant by the term Pax Romana, the Roman peace? How was it secured? Who benefited, and in what ways? Second, the declaration of peace was not an empirical observation. In saying this, I do not assert that Roman policy was not driven by calculations or empirically-grounded calculations of risk, say, regarding the withdrawal of Roman troops from a given area. Um, So perhaps I should say, the Declaration of Peace was not simply an empirical observation. It was a presumptive claim and a political act. And as such, it had normative entailments about how actions in a world at peace might be described and controlled. This has a variety of implications for us as readers of classical texts and historians of classical antiquity. Third, the Roman case invites scrutiny in light of modern systems of evaluation, that of post-colonialism, say, but also of peace studies. Did the ancients think of peace in negative terms, that is to say, was there a peace solely when there was an absence of war? Or did they also conceptualize it in more positive terms, in light of indices of human flourishing, for example, or the actualization of justice? And what were the politics of those acts? Although we translate the Roman word pox as peace, the Romans, in fact, had two different ways of understanding the term. The first construed pox as deriving from the word poctum, or poctio, meaning agreement. This understanding finds expression in the major Latin dictionaries to survive from antiquity, including that of Isidore of Seville, writing in the early seventh century. Four things are done in war. Fighting, flight, victory, and peace. The term peace seems to be taken from pactum, pact, pact. Moreover, a peace is agreed upon later. First, a treaty is entered into, a treaty is a peace made between warring parties. It derives from fide, trust, or from fetiales, that is, the priests of that name. For through them, treaties are made, just as wars are made by succulares, by lay people. We find a similar definition in the dictionary of Festus, who wrote in the second century. Sidious Cap- Capito thinks that pox derives from an agreement, pactio, about terms, which agreement is to be observed by each people mutually. For both Festus and Isidore, peace exists between parties in consequence of a bilateral agreement. At most, pax peace, is an abstraction from pactio and might be synonymous with it. There is peace between us because we made a peace. This understanding of pox, is also on display in Livy's narrative of the negotiations between the Romans and the Privernates in 329 BCE. The ambassador of the Privernates warns the Romans that, should you not give good pox, the pox will not last. Though some members of the Roman Senate denounced the ambassador as arrogant, the consul, the Roman consul, urged that conditions of peace could only be expected to last when those striking the agreement did so voluntarily. Agreement, in other words, must be consensual and not compelled. That said, both in this passage and elsewhere, Livy refers to the opponents of Rome as pacati, deriving from pacara. They have been pacified, or perhaps brought to heel, or subdued. In this passage, those who are voluntarii pacati acknowledge and ideally internalize their own, of their own free will, their condition vis-à-vis Rome. They might negotiate a peace on conditions of formal equality, but henceforth they will acknowledge, as the Romans would put it, the greaterness of Rome. And I'm going to explore some language that issued from this understanding later in today's lecture. Now in speaking in these terms I should acknowledge an argument recently advanced by a fine historian, Miles Lavon, who urges that uses of the term pacati to mean pacified as a grammatical passive, are relatively rare in contrast with uses of the term to mean something like peaceable or particularly peaceful toward us. This is indeed a valuable corrective, and further work should perhaps be undertaken to investigate whether this disposition toward peace is a learned behavior that the Romans understood themselves to have inculcated in the various counterparties whom they so describe. Oh yes, sorry, I'm, um, I'm now illustrating for you my own lack of skill with PowerPoint because um, this I intended to show you earlier, but I'll move on. So I want to resume, apart from the remarks on Miles Levon. A peace that is consequent upon pacification is something Romans can impose on the world, and it can be created through unilateral action rather than bilateral negotiation. Sorry. Just a few years before the visit of the Privernates to the Roman Senate, the Romans had considered how to treat their Latin allies, who had broken their treaty with Rome in anger at their own subordination. Having won the war that followed, the Romans debated how to proceed. The immortal gods have made you masters of the situation to such an extent that they have placed it in your hands, whether henceforth Latium will exist or not. Insofar as it concerns the Latins, You can therefore make a perpetual peace for yourselves, either through savagery or forgiveness. Do you want to counsel cruelly against those who have surrendered and been defeated? It lies in your power to eliminate all Latium and create vast desolations in a place where you often raised outstanding armies of allies through great and many wars. It seems to have been this passage that inspired the bitter denunciation that Tacitus placed in the mouth of Calgacus that many of you may remember from Tacitus's Agricola. Theft, slaughter, and plunder, they misname empire, and where they create a desolation, they call it peace. Now, Livy's use of pox to describe a general condition prevailing across an entire region, not created people by people, is connected to an imbricated network of transformations in culture and politics, two of which are important to my remarks today. One concerns peace, and the other, Roman understandings of their state. As regards peace, under the Emperor Augustus, Pax assumes an ideological importance largely without precedent in earlier Roman culture. This is reflected in the Emperor Augustus's claim to have surmounted Republican politics by ending all war. It was granted religious and monumental expression in the dedication of the Ara Pacis, and it was articulated through public ritual when the Emperor Vespasian chose to end his triumph at the Temple of Peace. Truly, as Isidore said, the end of war was now peace. And I've put on the screen the claim of the Emperor Augustus in his race, Gestae to have closed the Temple of Janus a ritual twice, a ritual that he claims was performed whenever Rome was not at war, which condition had only been achieved three times in Rome's history, or so he said. The degree to which pox as a condition of the polity and world had become a normative good, and may in fact have become a normative good for the first time, may be seen in the first fragment of the, of the history of Cassius Dio, a Greek writing in the, second, in the start of the 3rd century AD, when he declares an intent to narrate how the Romans conducted peace as well as war, in the words, kai erinusi, kai right. According to Augustus, after all, the Roman Republic had almost never been at peace, and Augustus is not the only such person to make this claim. That is, if you follow through on the Romans' claim that they had only closed the Temple of Janus once under the Republic, there had been maybe one year out of 500 when the Romans were at peace. The claim, therefore, to narrate the history of how the Romans conducted peace is somewhat perverse. That is, there, is no, there was no time period when they were at peace. And insofar as the Romans voted to go to war, they had simply chosen to be at war for 500 straight years. Um, the claim by a writer of the imperial period to narrate how the Romans conducted peace therefore reflects the penetration into the ideology of the empire, that peace was a normative good that they should actively aspire to achieve. There is simply no evidence under the Republic that the Romans thought of peace as a normative good, at least according to the, according to the Romans themselves as they narrated their Republican past. That said, by various means, Roman suzerainty did very largely end the regional and trans-regional intercommunal violence that had been endemic to the ancient Mediterranean, and there can be little doubt that the vast increases in population and aggregate wealth that are visible in the archaeological record largely issue from this. And nor was this invisible to contemporaries. In the words of the 2nd century Greek orator Elias Aristides, in place of the disputes over empire and preeminence through which all former wars broke out, some of these people enjoy a most pleasant calm like a silently flowing stream, gladly done with their toils and troubles, repenting of their vain shadow boxing. Sort of mimicry of fighting. Right? Ah, This is a What he's referring to here is essentially the mimicry of fighting that gladiators do. And he continues, it is no longer even believed that wars ever took place, but most men hear of them like idle myths. Aristides will shortly be our guide again to two consequences of the peace that are less often discussed. Now a moment ago, I described Livy's use of pox to describe a general condition obtaining throughout a territory as having two features that I wanted to explore today. The first, as I have said, is this elevation of peace to the status of a public good. The second connects the emergence of the notion of peace as a condition of a territorial unit of rule with the emergence of a Roman notion of empire as a bounded political space. And therefore, as something like sovereignty being exercised over such spaces Um, throughout the totality of the geographic space, and down through the population. For many, this transformation in Roman culture, in in the Roman understanding of the object of empire, is best known through John Richardson's studies of the terms Imperium and Provincia, which we now translate, with their etymological descendants, as Empire and Province. I've myself been writing a couple of studies recently about the prehistory of this revolution in cognition, My point today will unsurprisingly be that this revolution had profound implications at the level of the practice of rule. So in what follows, I want to focus on three issues. I was going to focus on four, but I'm going to cut one out. The one that I'm going to cut out are some brief remarks on peace and and the history of masculinity, which I'll summarize very quickly. But then I'm going to talk about the prominence of the notion of order in Roman ideologies of rule, the emergence of a discourse of policing, as a consequence of the imposition of peace, and finally, the instrumentalization of city-states to extend the infrastructural reach of the Roman state. So very quickly, skipping over the section on peace and masculinity, I simply would like to point out, as I think is empirically clear to all ancient historians, that in the world before the Roman Empire, service in the military was tied to citizenship in every city-state about which we know anything of its history. And with the imposition of Roman rule over the expanse of the Mediterranean, the right to have a militia and to order it what to do was simply taken away from all city-states over which Rome exercised suzerainty, more or less. The result was That some a kind of natural and universal correlation between military service and political agency was simply sundered for the first time in the long history of the Mediterranean in an emphatic and more or less permanent way, for at least something like a quarter of a millennium. Um, This receives or this situation receives several remarks in ancient historians. One of which I put up here. Those who were yesterday shoemakers and carpenters are not today infantry and cavalrymen nor as on the stage as one transformed into a soldier who was just now a farmer. Um, This long history, I mean, this must have implications. That is, there had been a tight network of associations that bound political agency, citizenship, and masculinity in the earlier history of the Mediterranean that was simply violently sundered. Um, by the Romans, and this must have implications for the history of of gender, for the history of masculinity, Um, but very, very little exploration has been done of this, and I was going to try to sketch some brief questions that might be posed of this history. But it was somewhat apart from the other things I'm going to talk about, so I'll simply move on. So first, notions of order in Roman ideologies of rule. This is by way of moving towards an answer to the question, did the Romans have a positive conception of peace rather than a purely negative Hobbesian one? In the emergent ideology of peace in the Augustan period, Pax, as a condition rather than agreement is closely associated with notions of social order, and above all, with what the Romans called stabilitas. Social order, in turn, is closely associated with law. In the West in particular, this is connected with the institution of Roman forms of public authority and the imposition of Roman public and private law. For example, Tacitus narrates the transition of the Frisians from a lingering state of unterminated war to pacified subjects as occurring through the wholesale reconstitution of their society along Roman norms. The nation of the Frisians, ferocious or scarcely loyal after the rebellion that began with the disaster to Lucius Apronius, gave hostages and settled on territory prescribed by Corbulo, he also imposed a Senate, magistrate, and laws. The language of the last clause bears close resemblance to that used by the Romans to, descri- to describe the political constitution of new Roman communities in the form of colonies. On the slide on the screen now, I reproduce the earliest known description of the delivery of laws to a Roman colony in a text that is contemporaneous with the act itself. Titus Annius Luscus, son of Titus, Triumvir, he provided for the construction of this temple and dedicated it. He composed and delivered laws. And three times he enrolled its Senate. For the... Um, for the Roman history buffs in the room of whom there are at least a few, um, I note that this is rather puzzlingly a text that derives from a supplementary deduction of colonists to the colony at Aquileia. That is to say, the colony at Aquileia had actually been founded several decades before, as is often the case with small Roman colonies Uh, conditions that we know very little about, but presumably among them um, disease and warfare had diminished the population of the colony to such an extent that they sent an embassy to Rome and said, please send us more people. So Titus Annius Luscus came back to deliver supplementary colonists, and it's a bit of a puzzle that it was on the occasion of the second delivery of colonists um, that he'd composed and delivered laws. Nonetheless, my point today is that the the process described in respect of the Frisians, employs language that the Romans used about establishing, essentially, political societies composed of Romans. So the close homology between Roman administration of self and other is that on which I wish to focus your attention. This reflects, I think, an important and long-term cross-pollination between something like the technologies of republican politics and those of republican empire which deserves more sustained attention than it is heretofore received. An important aspect of the history of my period generally, on which I'm not going to spend much time today, is the degree to which the Augustan Empire witnesses the domestication at Rome of forms of domination first developed for the rule over aliens, which the Romans henceforth deployed for the ruling uh, ruling over Romans at Rome. Now just as Anchises, in Virgil's Aeneid, encouraged the Romans to remember that their special talent was to inculcate in others the habits of peace, which is to say, they were not simply to impose peace or create a desolation, but to bring others to want peace for themselves, so it became a minor but crucial act of Roman self-regard to believe that others actively wanted to live lives ordered by law. In Livy, for example, the Antiates witness the stabilitas, as he puts it, obtaining in Capua as a result of the Capuans having adopted Roman law and using Roman justice. And so they ask for Roman law for themselves. And after news of the stability of Capuan affairs brought about by Roman discipline spread amongst the Allies, Patrons for the establishing of laws were granted by the Senate to the Antiates also, who were complaining they were making do without fixed laws and without magistrates. The patrons were those of the colony itself. And so the power not only of Roman arms, but also of Roman laws began to be felt far and wide. By the second century AD, Irrespective of differences in how Roman order might be produced in East and West, the Roman contribution to social order had become such a topos of the laudes imperii, of the praise of empire, um, that according to Elias Aristides, what was said by Homer, the earth common to all, you have made a reality by civilizing everything with your way of life and good order. That said, the theme remains closely associated with the imposition of Roman rule in the West and in particular with the nurturing by whatever means of the local use of Roman institutions. Thus Dio describes Augustus in the early 20s BCE as having, quote, conducted a census of the Gauls and set in order their way of life and system of government. As often, however, The language and the the conceit to which it gives voice are most clearly revealed in a moment of failure. The moment on which I wish to focus your attention is that of the governorship of Publius Quintilius Varus in Germany. In Dio's narrative, the Romans were holding portions of Germany, not entire regions, but merely such districts as happened to have been subdued so that no record has been made of the fact. And soldiers of theirs were wintering there, and cities were being founded through synoicism. The barbarians were changing the rhythm of their lifestyle to a Roman order and learning the ways of the forum and meeting in peaceful assemblies. And I, I might note for those who care about the language that used of these situations in the ancient world that the the phrase Mizzonto" to change the rhythm, is one of the more common metaphors for cultural change employed in antiquity, the other of which is a change of dress. Our other source for the actions of Publius Varus in Germany is that of who is Paterculus, um, who is probably our best and most contemporary source for the episode. And he reveals the success of the German plot against Varus, which ultimately issues in the destruction not only of the governor, but the legions under his command, as having come about through the Germans relying on their awareness of this as a Roman conceit. But the Germans, who combine great ferocity with great craft to an extent scarcely credible to as one who has no experience of them, and our race born to lying, by trumping up a series of fictitious lawsuits, now provoking one another to disputes, and now expressing their gratitude that Roman justice was settling those disputes and that their own barbarous nature was being softened down by this new and hitherto unknown method, and that quarrels, which were usually settled by arms, were now being ended by law. In this way, they brought Quintilius to such a degree of negligence that he came to look upon himself as an urban praetor administering justice in the forum, and not as a general in command of an army in the heart of Germany. So the Germans brought this Roman general a series of trumped up lawsuits and thanked him that they were now being settled by Roman justice. In other words, according to uh, Valleus, they played on this Roman conceit in in the gifts that the Romans brought not simply via peace, but via peace expressed through social order, and so lulled him into a state of um, negligence to the point of which they were able to slaughter him and his armies. I want now to make a few remarks on policing. The description by Tacitus, which I put back on the screen, of the imposition of order on the Frisians brings me to my next topic, which is that of policing, or at least what a modern legal theorist might call policing, or Marcus might call policing. But he can tell me if I'm wrong. My point is that in the train of any Roman judgment and declaration that a region was now peaceful would follow new frameworks for the interpretation of resistance to Roman rule. The Romans had a number of ways of understanding these situations. When recalcitrant populations existed geographically or topographically in the shadows of emergent state power, they might be figured as bandits, not so much threatening the existence of Roman rule as establishing separate orders in mimetic relation to the configuration of power that they resisted. That said, it is important to understand that the language of banditry amounts to a denial of politics in pursuit of a claim to sovereignty. In the Roman case, therefore, the language of banditry is intimately wedded to the language of peace. Regions are rendered peaceful through the penetration of state power, which is affected discursively by the classification of political and statal action by unauthorized actors as non-political and non-statal." In the language of Valleus Paterculus, once again, echoing Virgin, um, Augustan ideology, Augustan peace which has spread to the regions of East and West and to the bounds of North and South, preserves every corner of the world safe from the fear of brigandage. So, whatever self-understanding such peoples possessed and whatever they thought the politics of their own actions were, in the Roman perspective, the proper attitude to be exhibited by such persons once peace had been declared, which is to say, Once they had been described as within rather than without the structures of state power, the proper attitude to be observed was obedience. Language along these lines is given to us in the geography of the Elder Pliny, who must list all the peoples of the Roman Empire, identifying for each whether its relation to Rome was direct or mediated. So here, between this boundary and the river Amsaga, Africa contains 516 peoples who obey Rome's power of command. A little appreciated aspect of his catalogue, of Pliny's catalogue, is Pliny's insistent that the preeminent index of Roman sovereignty is that subject people should bring their disputes to Roman fora. That is to say, Pliny indexes sovereignty not to a monopoly on the power to authorize violence, a la Weber, but to a monopoly on the authorizing of law-making and law-applying institutions. This is a problem of later European political theory that um, I'm tracing elsewhere. But he can also say, as he does here, that the main duty of subject peoples, particularly insignificant subject peoples whose names he doesn't bother writing down, is that they simply obey. My point as regards policing is that whereas resistance to Rome in the conquest phase was a political act or an act of war between juridically parallel and theoretically equivalent actors, once order is established, which is to say declared, the duty of subjects is to obey agents of that order and resistance to those agents is a moral and not a political act. For example, a famous inscription from Sardinia records the efforts of a series of procurators to resolve a boundary dispute between two peoples, the Galilenses and Patulcenses. The Galilenses were wise enough in the ways of Roman bureaucracy to prevent earlier judgments from them from being acted on, in part by filing appeals. And there's a long history in a sort of Jim Scott-like terms of victims of Roman power exploiting Rome's love of bureaucracy by simply filing endless appeals. In 69 CE, the Roman procurator, Lucius Helvis Agrippa, had had enough and issued the following command. The Galilense shall depart from the territory of the Patokenses Campani, which they have seized by force before the next calends of April. If they do not obey this command, let them know they will be guilty of long-standing contumacy and will be subject to the punishment that has now often been announced. Contumacy is not a criminal act. It's simply a disposition. It's a disposition that leads one not to obey when you're told what to do. And the moral failing involved is heightened in proportion as one knowingly persists in error, at least as the Romans see it. Exactly the same fault is, of course, attributed to the Christians whom Pliny interrogates. I refer here, of course, to the famous letters in Pliny's Corpus 1096 and 1097, in which Pliny describes to the emperor Trajan um, his encounter with Christians, who were denounced to him anonymously, um, his interrogation of them, and Trajan writes back with advice on how to conduct trials of Christians. I have asked them whether they are Christians. This is in section three. When they confess, I have asked them a second and third time, threatening punishment. When they persevere, I have ordered them to be led away." Meaning to punishment and almost undoubtedly to execution. For I do not doubt but that whatever it is that they are confessing, their stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy definitely ought to be punished. Now, as Pliny had confessed at the opening of his letter, he didn't know why Christianity was illegal. And insofar as it was a victimless and largely a moral crime, those who announced that they were willing to stop being Christians were let off scot-free. That is nothing that they had done while being Christians or by virtue of being Christians in itself merited punishment. What he is clear about is when a Roman magistrate tells you, cut it out, not doing that itself merits death. These frameworks of evaluation in their languages are brought together in Tacitus' representation of a speech by the Roman general Petitius Cariolus to the Gauls inclined to rebellion in the year 70 CE. He presents them, that is, Cariolus presents the Gauls, with a vision of their life before and after Rome. Throughout the whole of Gaul, there were always desperates and wars until you passed under our law. We are, Siles, despite many provocations, imposed upon you by right of victory only what was necessary for our preserving peace. Hence, at the conclusion of his speech, he says, love and cherish peace and the city, meaning possibly the city of Rome and quite probably membership in the city, meaning possibly citizenship which victors and vanquished enjoy on equal footing. May your experience of the two alternatives teach you, and here I focus on these words, not to prefer insubordination and ruin over obedience and safety. What is notable, once again, is the conjoining of a transregional peace with the imposition of a superordinate system of public law. In consequence, varied forms of political conduct the choice to be ruled by kings or to fight with each other, or for that matter even the choice to fight with Rome, are simply recategorized as dispositional and moral. This shift from a language of politics and international law to a language of obedience and morality is consequent upon, you might say, the sovereign act of declaring the Augustan peace. And I want to close By discussing the ethics and economics of governing through cities. Now it's a truism that the Roman Empire governed through cities, or by means, you might say, of the co-optation of local elites. What should be more explicitly acknowledged when we say such things, and it's a commonplace of Roman historians' talk, is that the Romans employed such methods to solve a fundamental problem of weakness. In other words, The Roman state in itself lacked, woefully lacked, the infrastructural power to govern the populations that it claimed to rule. To solve this problem, they instrumentalized city-states and indigenous institutions in order to extend the infrastructural reach of the Roman state because they lacked the resources to do so directly. This form of action is evident in any number of bodies of evidence even as regards the Roman state itself, that is, it's internal conceived of as a community of citizens. So, for example, in a tablet, in an inscribed tablet from the south of Italy um, in the the first century BCE, it is the city of Heraclea that is charged, that is, the institutions and practices of local government, are brought into significant homeomorphy with the Roman ones in order to conduct the Roman census. The Roman census lacked the power and the personnel to conduct a census itself. It simply told the constituent cities of the empire, you must conduct the census according to the instructions that we will send out. In the case of non-Roman cities that served as nodal points for the extension of Roman state power, collaborating with Rome brought potentially massive benefits. Few were the Greek city-states outside Greece that could ever have obtained the territorial size that they did under Rome had they not been backstopped by Roman power, and in particular the power that Rome indisputedly did have, which is to say spectacular violence. So I want now to return to a much earlier point. As late as the late second and early first centuries BCE, Rome conceived of much of what modern maps depict as the Roman Empire, as consisting of independent city-states that were in fact bound to each other through networks of bilateral or multilateral treaty obligations. By way of example, I cite the clauses on mutual assistance from the Roman treaty with Ostapalaya of 105 BCE. Between the people of the Romans and the people of the Ostapalaya, let there be peace and friendship and alliance, both on land and on sea for all time. Let there be no war. Then, the people of the Ostapalaya shall not grant passage to the enemies and opponents of of the people of the Romans through their own land, and the land that the people of the Ostapolians controls with public sanction, so that upon the people of the Romans and those ruled by the Romans, they might wage war. With regard to Rome's enemies, neither with weapons, nor money, nor ships, shall the people of the Ostapolians help them with public sanctions in bad faith." And then, the people of the Romans, blah, 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 exactly the same thing over again. Now, although the treaty, avowedly takes place in and seeks to affect a multilateral world, the relationship of peace and friendship is bilateral and takes the form of an agreement among notional equals, and their equality finds expression in the exact symmetry of the stipulations that bind each party. So the reason I didn't include what the Romans swore is it's exactly the same as that which the Ostapolai just swore, despite the fact that Ostapolai was like this big, and Rome was very, very big. A quarter-century later, in the decree of the Roman Senate regarding the privileges to be awarded to an ally, named Stratonicaea, the Roman approach to the landscape of empire appears very much different. This is one clause. It says, Pedasos, Temesos, Keramos, and the lands, villages, harbors, and the revenues of the cities that Lucius Cornelius Sulla Imperator, for the sake of their courage and honor, added and assigned to them, that it should be permitted to them to have these things. At issue here, of course, is a system of reward—and I don't want to deny that—by which peoples who were loyal to Rome were granted subsidiary suzerainty over others whom they quote-unquote had, and who are henceforth deemed sub-political. But administrative subordination also amounted to a mechanism whereby select cities were instrumentalized so as to extend metropolitan control over peoples in space in a fashion that was profoundly not true of an, any network of bilateral treaties. So understood, the effect of administrative subordination of some communities over others is similar to the work performed in the clauses of jurisdiction in the Roman Lex Rupilia, which is to say, the Roman law that is signed that described the legal landscape of Sicily. In this law, um, Sicily is described as carved into jurisdictions, kiwitas by kiwitas, in each of which potentially a different code of law might obtain. I name these processes similar because a clear implication of the logic of these jurisdictional texts is that they are accounting for all space and peoples within the territory. That is, I am sure when the Romans say that there are jurisdictions within Sicily, in each of which there is a kiwitas, the Romans did not intend there to be places in Sicily that were simply unregulated by law. I've written a good deal recently on how this was achieved as a lexical matter, and surely at some level it was a purely lexical matter. I don't think the Roman law actually extended into the hills of Sicily. Here, suffice it to say that the identification and interpolation of individual taxa, that is to say, regardless of what the Romans talked about were cities, or jurisdictions, or assize districts, or what have you, um, the naming of these one by one by one allowed for the whole, that is the province, to emerge to view as an aggregate of units of rule. Then, to return to the claim I was making about the language used by the Romans of Stratonicaea the attraction to a Greek city of this form of government lay in the power that the city-state was thereby granted to exploit the wealth of the communities that were subordinated to it. Stradonicaea is in fact an unusual case, because later in the same text, the Senate directs the um, Roman general Sulla, it says, if he should wish, to assess the tax burden that Stradonicaea might impose on the cities that were now dependent upon it. But in general, Rome paid no attention whatsoever to the incidence of taxation within these city-state communities. This allowed the city-states that collaborated with Roman rule to pay their taxes to Rome by distributing the burden to whatever extent possible on the often non-Greek communities that they, as the Romans say, they quote-unquote had. This aspect of the system receives remarkable affirmation in the speech of praise given by Dio to the city of Kalainai. It's an oration from towards the end of the first century CE. You occupy the strongest site and the richest on the continent. You are settled in the midst of plains and mountains of rare beauty. You have the most abundant springs and soil of the highest fertility bearing, all told, innumerable products. Furthermore, you stand as a bulwark in front of Phrygia, Lydia, and Caria besides, and there are other tribes around you whose members are most numerous, Cappadocians and Pamphylians and Pisidians, and for all of them, your city constitutes a market and a place of meeting. And you hold in subordination many cities unknown to fame and many prosperous villages, and the greatest sign of your power is the size of your tax burden. For I suppose, just as those beasts of burden seem most powerful that carry the greatest load, so it is reasonable to conclude that the best of cities are those paying the largest assessment." Yeah, laugh it up. And Dio, I think, is not making a sick joke about the amount of tax that Kalini must pay to Rome. Nor is he making simply the best of a bad situation. I mean. If, he really, if they were really angry about their taxes, he could have just left it out of the speech. Nor, for that matter, are the references to holding cities and villages in subordination and that to the size of Kalini's tax burden, independent points. Rather, Kalini's tax burden is high because it controls many, ta- many communities on behalf of Rome. And it is lucky to return to the point with which he begins because it can abuse those communities and spare itself in setting the incidence of taxation. We can now return, then, to Elias Aristides. Aristides praised Rome because it ruled, as he said, over free persons. In contrast with the Persian Empire, which delivered entire cities into the control of its friends, like Themistocles, more or less in usufruct, as he says, like property. But we can now see that Aristides was wrong. Aristides thinks of the empire as ruling over free persons and communities because he's thinking exclusively of Greek cities. Many of those were free, and they did flourish under the empire because it gave them reign to exploit those whom the Greeks despised. One can see this above all in his closing remarks on the flourishing of urbanism under Roman rule. And the whole inhabited world, as it were, attending a national festival, has laid aside its old dress, the carrying of weapons. Another remark on the taking away from cities of the right to conduct war, and for that matter, the transformation in the nature of citizenship and it has turned with the full authority to do so to adornments and all kinds of pleasures. And all the other sources of contestation have died out in the cities, but this single rivalry holds all of them, how each will appear as fair and charming as possible. Everything is full of gymnasiums, fountains, gateways, temples, handicrafts, and schools. In his vision, which is of course partial, but precisely what interests me is its partiality, the benefits of empire accrue to cities, by which he means the Greek cities, where perhaps 15% of the population lived. What is more, wealth flows to them naturally through the forceless force, you might say, or the unweaponized power of a Pacific empire. We are often told nowadays that we should read texts like that of Elias Aristides in the praises of empire tradition with a hermeneutic of suspicion, and we probably should. But if we do that, we should zero in on passages like this and investigate both their politics and their political economics. I have said enough about their political economics. As regards politics, allow me to point out that many of the cities of the Eastern Mediterranean that were placed in a position of superintendency over others were juridically non-Roman, and so functioned to a point as something like a constitutive outside to Roman power, even as they operated so as to extend it. A great American politician whom some of you may remember, that is to say, Tip O'Neill, is credited with the truism, all politics is local. In the Roman Empire of the Pax Romana, all domination was local. And now for some words in conclusion. Michel Foucault once posed the question whether power isn't simply a form of warlike domination. Isn't power a sort of generalized war, he said, which assumes at particular moments the forms of peace and the state? Peace would then be a form of war, and the state a means of waging it. Along these lines, I've suggested that peace as an end of war in the Roman world often amounted to not much more than a turning point in the nature, location, character, and characterization of violence. My remarks on fiscality followed in this vein. That said, I've also tried to draw attention to other areas of material and social relations or the passage from some sort of Ecksteinian interstate anarchy to Roman peace, it was not a zero-sum game in which inputs of domination through war produced equivalent outputs of domination through statal violence. Nor do I want to leave the impression that wealth extraction can serve as a proxy for structures of domination writ large. Among other things, the value of what is extracted is often not nearly so important as the mere fact of extraction. That's why, Rome forced a certain number of pastoralist tribes to pay taxes in the form of a few cowhides per year, and in one famous case, extracted as its taxation a few pounds of beeswax. Rather, it was the case that the direction in the flow of tribute rendered visible the flow of obedience and the counterflow of authority. That is true in the short and perhaps the medium term, regardless of the actual balance of transfer payments that were necessary to sustain imperial rule, and perhaps even necessary to sustain the symbolics of rule, which is a kind of different thing. On my understanding, we would then make a big mistake if we indicted these projects as diluted because they were inefficient. The economy as a metaphor for the politics of empire is problematic, not least because much of the language we use about the economy is itself metaphorical and derives from simplistic understandings of mechanics, as well as reductive notions of modeling. This brings me to a penultimate point, The historiography of empire often operates on the basis of an interpretive dyad, or perhaps multiple interpretive dyads, that oppose metropolitan claims to authority and and efficacy against local realities, whatever is meant by that, or metropolitan power to local aspirations to self-determination. In the 90s and early aughts, and perhaps less so now, people engaged in regional study with respect to Rome were obsessed with resistance. They wanted their area, or their peoples, to have resisted empire, to have persisted through time despite imposed imperial cultures. They were therefore also invested in positing and investigating some distinction between the symbolics of rule and the actualities of government, its forms, density, penetration, and so forth. I sometimes wonder if this way of thinking got the entire project of ancient empire wrong. Maybe the symbolics were the practice Ancient empires were not fragile or thin or inefficient because there was little or nothing to extract, and imperial elites were not therefore deluded if hanging on to empire was, was unprofitable. Nor, frankly, in the modern world of um, economic studies of the ancient world, nor should ancient empires be taken more seriously if we can claim or pretend that they generated surplus, or as my friends in Stanford say, growth. The end of empire was not growth, or acculturation, or even conversion. The end of empire was empire. Finally, I wonder if the distinction between negative and positive conceptions of peace doesn't turn out to be insufficient to the Roman case. It's not simply that Roman texts articulate a range of views on the subject from negative to strongly positive. That's unsurprising. More important, as I've already stressed, the Roman state was infrastructurally weak. In that, it resembled all other ancient states. It might have stopped outright warfare among its subjects' populations, and it might have announced an aspiration to orient local social orders to the rule of law, as I've tried to show, but the actualization of such ideals and the material flourishing of subject populations were only possible through the collaborative work of local ideologies and institutions, whose homeomorphy with Roman ones requires substantial and specific explanation. The good news, I suppose, is that contemporary efforts to understand these aspects of Roman history are now achieving a kind of depth and complexity of very considerable power. And the opportunity for corresponding advances in contemporary understandings of both the Roman peace and the ethics of empire needs only to be seized. Thank you very much.